As we begin our time in God's Word together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning grateful for the blessings of worship that we've already enjoyed, the ways that you work through song and prayer and the reading of your Word uh, to build us up and to prepare us for this next week and this new year. Lord, as we come to study your Word today, I pray that you would work through the preaching of the Word that these, your people, might be built up and sent out ready to serve you. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 53 as we consider another clause of the Apostles' Creed. Just to remind you, or if you're new and you haven't uh, been in this study so far, we're in a sub-series or a mini-series on discipleship as we consider what it is that Christians should believe. And we've been looking at, uh, as as a kind of a guide for that, uh, the, an ancient creed, which is probably uh, has been used in the church since the, uh, the second century, uh, which is known as the Apostles' Creed. And it gives us sort of the, the root beliefs, the basic beliefs that Christians should hold to. And as I've stated several times, it is not uh, these we don't believe that these are optional doctrines that that, you know, you can take it or leave these that if you claim the name of Jesus, then this these basic tenets are what every Christian should believe. And so uh, to start with today, we're going to read that together as we've been uh, sort of working to commit this to memory uh, as a, a means of of having something to hold on to as a, a basic statement of our faith. Uh, if we were ever asked in a, in a midst of persecution or anything like that, we could recite this as a statement of what we as Christians believe. And so if you notice in the center of your bulletin uh, is printed the Apostles' Creed, and we'll read this together as we state our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into the grave. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So this morning we consider the clause in the Apostles' Creed, suffered under Pontius Pilate. And we've been considering the life of Jesus and what the life of Jesus means for us, what the works of Jesus in his life, death and resurrection mean for us. And so we come to this statement suffered under Pontius Pilate. So, you know, Americans have this strange, conflicted relationship to our bodies that you see really played out throughout every year, especially starting right now in this very moment, right? Every year around this time, people begin to commit to what? What do we call it? Our New Year's resolutions, right? And we get this idea that we're going to, over the next year, we're going to have a new 
you, right? We're going to make our, for ourselves a new body, a new personality, a new commitment that we're going to make to ourselves and to the world and maybe even to God himself. And so we commit to having a new body, to, to getting right with our health, to maybe we ask for an exercise bike for Christmas or we subscribe to a new diet plan. And Lord knows if you're on social media, there are all sorts of diet plans that you can subscribe to and fail at. Uh, but <laughs> but, uh, but uh, we, we, we commit to some new diet plan and we get serious about our health. And then February comes. With the long cold nights and the chocolate candies at Valentine's Day and our goals are tested. March and April are no better as spring break and Easter come and all the chocolate bunnies and all that good stuff happen. And by May, that beach body we were chasing has run long away from us, right? (laughs) Way out ahead of us at that point. And so at some point towards the end of summer, we just start to think, you know, I think I like food better than I like exercising. And so I'm going to stick with that. Seems like I'm more committed to that than I am to exercising. So we enjoy Thanksgiving and Christmas without thinking a bit about our diet. And now we're back to where we started, right? Um, So Americans talk a great deal about our health. In fact, it's a, it's a major theme of politics, it's a major theme of, uh, of our social media feeds, it's a major theme of our advertisements, but then, even though we talk about it, we disregard it. We abuse alcohol and sugar as if it will have no effect on us, and then when the doctor gives us our blood work, we want to know what he's going to do to fix it, right? <laughs> Americans are beset by a philosophy known as Neoplatonism. Now, as Americans, we might not think about that at all, but we as Americans are Neoplatonists if there ever was one. And a Neoplatonist has the view that the body and the soul are unrelated, besides the fact that the body is a skin that the soul puts on for a time. The Neoplatonist thinks that the body is a useless thing to be used and abused and then shed at death. You hear Neoplatonism in the identity ideology that is so rampant in our day. Just consider what people will say. Someone might say, I, wasn't, I was born in the wrong skin. I'm really not this gender. I, I want to change my body to match my soul. Right? You hear that all the time now. That's Neoplatonism. You hear it in our literature as, as Shakespeare's Hamlet dreamed of shuffling off this mortal coil. You even hear it in our depictions of heaven as we view heaven as this bodiless, bodilessness or this bodiless existence beyond the clouds. But the Bible speaks very differently about the body and this world. Now, certainly this world has been cursed by the fall. One of the important curses of Genesis chapter 3 is that even the ground itself is corrupted by the fall of Adam and it no longer produces the abundance that God had created it to produce. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8 verse 22, the whole creation groans for redemption. It is also certainly true that our own bodies are cursed by the fall. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Our own bodies are cursed by the fall. God does not uh, not only curses the ground in Genesis three, but he curses man and woman as well. Women 
will suffer pain in childbearing. Man will toil to eke out a living from the ground. And both man and woman will die and return to the dust. So suffering is a natural part of this fallen world. No wonder we want to shuffle off this mortal coil and fly away to some ephemeral heaven in the clouds. But while suffering is, a way, is the way of this fallen world, it is not the way it should be. God created this world out of the abundance of His goodness, and He blessed it and called it good. He created mankind to bear His image, and He blessed them and called them very good. We are made of this earth, and we are made for this earth to subdue it and to rule it. The earth and our own bodies are not the problem. The curses of sin and suffering are the problem. So as Christians, we believe that Jesus came to identify with us in our suffering. This is why this ancient creed confesses that we believe Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now, I want to suggest that that line doesn't just deal with one day in the life of Jesus Christ, but really it points to the fact that all of Jesus's life was a life of suffering, that Jesus lived in a life of suffering so that he might identify with us and redeem us from it. As we studied over the last few weeks, Jesus entered this world in the frailty of humanity. He existed and experienced the pain and hunger and thirst and fatigue that all humans experience. He knew the sorrows of lost loved ones and strained friendships and the rejection of men. But this life of suffering that Jesus lived, it wasn't incidental to his work in coming and dying on the cross. And it wasn't accidental. It wasn't something that he didn't plan for. But rather, Jesus chose to live under the burdens of this cursed world so that he might redeem it. That act of willful suffering of Jesus is what the theologians call his act of obedience. So if you don't get anything else today, I want you to understand this one thing. Jesus actively obeyed God, even in the suffering of his humanity, so that he might redeem us, body and soul, from the curse of this world, from the curse of sin. Let me state that again in case you're taking notes. Jesus actively obeyed God, even in the suffering of his humanity, so that he might redeem us, body and soul, from the curse of sin. To understand the depths of this willful suffering of Jesus Christ, let's read Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 9 together. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 9. Who has believed what they have heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit found in his mouth. So this is a prophecy of Isaiah some 700 years before Jesus would be born and minister and die in the land of Judea. But it prophesies so beautifully and so perfectly the life and the suffering of Jesus. And there are three sufferings that Isaiah mentions that I want you to notice that go to this point of the the redemption that Jesus brings through his suffering. And these three sufferings are the sufferings of ignobility. That's I-G-N-O-B-I-L-I-T-I, a T-Y, ignobility, identity, and indignation, ignobility, identity, and indignation. See, that's what I get for trying to use all the same letter to start my points with, uh, to alliterate. But uh, so first, in verses one through three, we see the suffering of ignobility. Isaiah begins his prophecy of this suffering servant by telling us two things, two ways that he will be rejected by men. He starts by saying that he will have no form or majesty and no beauty that we should desire him. As we saw last week, Jesus was born in the lowliest of places to the lowest of people. He didn't have name recognition, a family history, nobility or wealth. His ministry started among the outcasts of Galilee and grew to include those who were rejected by the nobility of his day. At the peak of his ministry, he might have had around 120 followers made up of fishermen, prostitutes, lepers, and tax collectors. And, you know, it's a a side point, but I'll make this point because Joe brought it up in Sunday school today, is that it's interesting that today uh, a lot of Christianity is formed, a lot of churches are formed around a sense of excitement and sensationalism. And attractiveness. In fact, that is a a large part of ministry focus today is being attractive to the society at large by having concerts instead of worship services and having light shows and, and all of the fancy gadgets and all of those things and trying to attract people and to be sensational in the way that we have church. And the interesting thing is is that we are basing that on an effort to attract people to someone, Jesus Christ, 
who was not desirable, who was not noticed by men, who was rejected, and who even at the height of his ministry, even when people would notice him, and even when he started to draw a crowd, he would leave and go into the desert to get away from the crowd because that was not the way Jesus drew people to himself. Jesus worked through the small things. When he had a crowd in John chapter 4 of, and, and the Pharisees were noticing him and beginning to, promote, uh, to recognize that he was a great teacher, he left and he went to find one woman in Samaria so that he might bring her to faith. Jesus worked in the, in the, uh, in the small things, in the unnoticed things, in the ways that, the, the ways that people would reject Especially in our day, we would not think that Jesus' ministry was very successful because he didn't have a lot of followers. He didn't have people committed to his ministry. He didn't have a large uh, war chest to go out and to bring people to Christ. He did things through the small, insignificant ways of ministry. And so it is strange that in America we think that we can build our ministries on a a method that Jesus didn't use. It is strange that we think that the, the, the attractiveness is what matters when Jesus in his very life and ministry was summarized by the lack of beauty and attractiveness that he had. But then also in verse 3, Isaiah foretells that he will be despised and rejected by men. Not only was Jesus not attractive in the way that we would assume a spiritual leader should be, but his life also reflects this idea that he was despised and rejected. King Herod, from the very start, tried to kill him in the frenzy of mass infanticide. The Sadducees tried to trap him with their assumed contradictions of the law. The Pharisees wanted to prove that they had a superior understanding of the law compared to this upstart rabbi. The Herodians were wary of the potential threat that he posed to their rule. For all of these groups, he was judged for the impropriety of his birth, the insignificance of his hometown, and his lack of of scholarly pedigree. As John chapter 1 verse 10 through 11 says, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Second, in verses 4 through 6, we see the suffering of identity. Isaiah sees that this suffering servant will identify with us in two ways. In verse 4, he says that the Messiah will carry our griefs and our sorrows. Oh, how beautiful it is that Jesus has compassion on our suffering. Do you understand today that Jesus has compassion on your suffering? The suffering of your sin, the suffering of your pain, the suffering of your loss, the suffering of your inability to please Him and to serve Him. Jesus has compassion on your suffering. Where others would pass by with no offer of comfort, Jesus would stoop and heal the crippled man. Where others would shun in disgust, Jesus would reach out and touch the leper. Where others pick up rocks in judgment, 
Jesus would forgive the woman caught in adultery. Jesus looked on our grief and suffering. He looked our grief and suffering in the face and he bore it with us. He hasn't just borne with us in our suffering, but he has brought healing and restoration for our suffering through his death and resurrection. In verses five and six, we also see that the servant of God will identify with us in the judgment of our sin. Jesus, in his death on the cross, substituted himself, taking our place, absorbing our judgment. Jesus suffered the judgment of our sins that he never committed. Jesus suffered the judgment of sins that he never committed for a people who despised him by men who had no authority over him. And yet he chose to do it all so that the Lord might lay on him the iniquity of us all. Finally, in verses 7 and seven through 9, we see the suffering of indignation. I want to focus mainly on two words that we find in verse 8 of Isaiah chapter 53. It says there, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. There is a... a strange poetry to the suffering of Jesus. And it's one that we often recognize, and that is that Jesus did not have to suffer. As the Son of God, the very image of the Father, the very imprint of His nature, and with 10,000 angels at the ready to defend His honor, Jesus did not have to suffer. And yet, He suffered under Pontius Pilate, willingly and readily for our sins. Jesus stood under the oppression and the judgment of men, not because he was trapped, not because he was caught up in some uh, plot that he could not control, not because he was powerless to do anything, but because he willfully and willingly suffered for our sins, so that He might redeem us. You see, He took the beating of men whose lives He sustained by His own will. And He carried on His back a dead tree, though He was the very tree of life. Jesus took all of this indignation so that He might save us. So as we end this morning, there's a beautiful song that I kept thinking of as I was writing this sermon. And it's a song by a band that I like called City of Light. Uh, It's a song called Jerusalem. And I'm not going to sing it for you, but not because I can't sing it, but because I want you to hear the poetry of what this song says, because it sums up so beautifully what the, the point that I'm trying to make in the suffering of Jesus. And so hear this song as we end today. It says, see him in Jerusalem, walking where the crowds are. Once these streets had sung to him, now they cry for murder. Such a frail and lonely man, holding up the heavy cross. See him walking in Jerusalem, on the road to save us. See him there upon the hill, hear the scorn and laughter. Silent as a lamb he waits, 
praying to the Father. See the King who made the sun and the moon and shining stars. Let the soldiers hold and nail him down so that he could save them. See him there upon the cross, now no longer breathing. Dust that formed the watching crowds takes the blood of Jesus. Fill the earth is shaking now. See the veil is split in two. And he stood before the wrath of God, shielding sinners with his blood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the redemption that we have in Jesus. That Jesus, though he was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus did what we could not do. He bore the suffering of sin, the suffering of your judgment, the suffering of all of humanity, and he bore it without sin. He offered back to you the righteousness that you required, and he covered our sins through his substitutionary death. Lord, we are thankful for the death of Christ, for the suffering of Christ. We are thankful for the death of Christ because it means that we have life through him. So, Lord, I pray that as we leave this place, that we would leave with the newness of life in this new year, the newness of life that is not burdened by the suffering of this world, but burdened by the, the love of Jesus and a desire to serve him. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.